You're listening to Series 2 of the Sustainable and Resilient Cities podcast. My name is Abby O'Connor and I'm a PhD student in sociology. And my name is Ronnie Hughes, also a PhD student in sociology. And we are your co-hosts for this series. And in this series, we're going to be discussing navigating our way through doing PhDs in a global pandemic. And all that that might entail with all kinds of people. In today's episode, we're going to explore some of the methodological issues faced by PhD students in the current climate. We're joined by Emily McKindo, who's a PhD student in the history department here at Liverpool, and she's going to discuss some of the issues that she's faced in the last few months and talk about where she's moving towards with her research, where she's had to make changes and how she's done that. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining us. So if we could just start with kind of generally in these uncertain times, how are you doing? doing all right thank you um yeah I'm kind of quite lucky that I have no real responsibilities so it's going all right (laughs) yeah I mean we'll get on to how you're doing with the university and all of that we're quite keen on this second series that well we check how everybody is because you know this isn't what it's not what we all signed up for is it it's just like no well thank you for asking but can you tell us about your PhD in two minutes or so so what are you doing? So I am researching British aid to El Salvador between 1970 and 2009 and I'm including in the aid looking at government aid, so foreign policy, arms sales, all that sort of stuff. Um, the work of NGOs mainly focusing on religious organisations like CAFOD, Christian Aid and the Catholic Institute for International Relations, um, looking at their aid programmes and overseas international development. And I'm also looking at the solidarity network that sprung up in the UK from the 1970s onwards and is still in existence today. So I'm looking at the relationship between all three of those strands and trying to paint a picture of how Britain aided or its relationship with El Salvador in this period, because it's pretty much an unknown constant at the moment. Your work is spanning 40 years and so and either side of the Atlantic. So what was your original methodology for all that? Well, <laughs> so my plan was to do oral history interviews and combine that with archival research because there's automatically run into a problem with it being a history PhD and the statute of limitations on releasing documents. So I knew that from the ni- for anything from the 90s onwards, I was going to struggle to find government documents that have been released so I'm supplementing that side with interviews but yeah a lot of the NGO archives aren't particularly thorough so that I've supplemented those with interviews as well so yeah my plan was just to sort of do both and then have a fieldwork trip to El Salvador where I was going to go and do my El Salvador side of interviews and archives there as well. So had you begun your fieldwork before lockdown I'm, I'm guessing you haven't been to El Salvador no, sadly, I haven't been to El Salvador. So I managed to get started in about October 2019. And I really managed to hit the ground running with my, my British archives. I did four or five trips down to London and I got quite a good way into the official documents, government documents and some of the NGOs. Um, and I was planning to go to El Salvador in sort of April, May time this year. But obviously that was not possible. So... So there's a bit of advice for others there, isn't there? So you're, you're just starting year three, are you now? 
or about a year in January I'll start my third yeah. year so you were comfortably and only just into your second year when you started your field work okay yes. I'll, I'll remember that as I'm comfortably and only just into my second year <laughs> I am comfortably into my third with a long yeah. way to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I just jump in there, Emily, and ask, how did you, just out of interest, how did you recruit your participants, the ones that you were going to be interviewing before COVID-19 happened? So I started off, my supervisor, Andrew Redden, has already had some links, um, especially in El Salvador, because we both work with Music Hope, which is a uh, music charity in El Salvador. So through that, we were able to foster links, and he had some links with the UCA, which is the University of Central America in San Salvador. And I also already had some links with CAF, some members of staff at CAFOD, because I'd done some work with them before. Um, and it was just a case of focusing on the initial contacts and saying to them, well, you know, you were around, you were doing this, can you put me in touch? And that's gone quite well, actually. That's been quite a good tactic. Everybody, every interview I've done, they've said, oh, well, you should speak to this person, here's their information. And, and so it's been quite an organic and quite a good like flow of getting participants um I've hit some roadblocks with people that have I've been given their into their contact details I've got in touch and not heard back from them but I think that's to be expected I think I've got a good way through most of the people I kind of had an idea of if I could get hold of them I would like to speak to them or the types of people that I would like to speak to um but I've definitely had done more interviews than I was planning because people have suggested oh well I've got this friend or I stayed in touch with this person or that person so I think it's a really good way of um that's snowball sampling isn't it that's how I do my interviews on the most part and I think it's really good because once you interview someone and they get a deeper understanding of your work then it's much easier for them to recommend people that they know directly as opposed to kind of identifying people based on what you know of them before actually having done any interviews in depth. So I think it's a really, really good way of doing it. And also, you know, people are more likely to to take part in research if they're doing it through people they know. Yeah, I think that's gone really well. One of the things that has gone really well with my fieldwork has been once I've been able to sort of tell people in the beginning, I didn't really know if people were around or who was even involved in some of the organizations that I'm researching and so when I've casually mentioned it to somebody at the end of an interview I'm like oh did you happen and then it sort of opened up a lot more doors than I thought so yeah that's been been good well that sounds great and that sounds like a textbook well done Emily Um, (laughs) and then there was a global pandemic so so what specifically in your research has changed now because of COVID so I've had to reconsider pretty much my, well, my methodological, methodological approach has stayed the same because I'm still using oral history interviews. I'm still relying on archives, but I've had to reconsider what I thought or what I was hoping to get from my trip to El Salvador and see if I can almost recreate or source that information from the UK whether that's a case of trying to do interviews online which is much harder trying to cultivate those contacts contacts without actually going the archives generally aren't digitized the archives are generally quite difficult to get hold of and to get access to so I've had to think about the information that I wanted and think about it from another perspective and see if I can find that information from the UK which has been interesting. Have you conducted any interviews online yet? Yes so I managed to move when the pandemic hit I managed to move all of my scheduled interviews 
online. So I'm using Skype mainly. Um, so I've done seven or eight online now. And how, it, sorry, have you, did you, so you, had you done any, you'd done some of your interviews before you'd moved online, yeah. right? So yeah. can we talk a bit about any differences between face-to-face -face interviews and online, any good bits or bad bits between the two? I think it's really interesting for students, obviously, new students will probably be doing online interviews and those of us that are in the middle of field work it's useful to kind of reflect on anything that you've learned or things that have been difficult yeah I think for the main part doing them with video calling is fairly the same because you get for me it's like I'm trying to get the story and I'm trying to get them to talk so I'm not looking for you know I'm not as reliant on like physical cues or like that. I don't need to be in front of them for my interviews, I don't think. So with the video call ones, it's been exactly the same almost. It's been, some of them have taken a little bit more persuading, a bit more convincing of it. It will be fine. I've considered all the security aspects and this is these are the procedures that or the steps that I've taken to make sure that we, it will be secure and all of that will be the same. But I think some of them where video conferencing isn't possible because some of my research participants are a little bit older and aren't as comfortable with that technology. So I've done a couple over the phone and those generally haven't been as successful. They've all been, they've been fine, but they've been more challenging and I've had to, it's difficult. I, I struggle a little bit knowing when they're done talking and when, when you're going to jump, whether you're jumping in to interrupt them or whether they're just thinking about it. And for a lot of them, I'm asking them about stuff that happened in the 70s. So they need that time to think about and remember the answers to the questions because I don't always provide a list of questions. And sometimes, well, a lot of the time they'll start talking. I say, oh, I didn't know you were involved in that because they're all involved in everything is what I'm finding. So I prepare questions on one thing and then want to ask about another. So they may have sat down and thought about one thing. And then if I ask them, they need the time. So I struggle a little bit with over the phone when you can't see, physically see them, see whether they're thinking or see whether they're done. That has been more challenging, I think. Are you finding that um, in terms of like you conducting, if you if we're comparing kind of face-to-face -face interviews to online or over the phone, how are you finding it as a researcher? Like, for example, I know that um, I actually find in interviews over the phone or via video a bit more exhausting. I think we're all talking about how uh, Zoom and stuff can be quite tiring. I think, as you say, mm -hmm. it's your often we're find, you're finding that you have to be um, a little bit, not more performative, but you have to make sure that you're actively engaging more because you don't have those physical cues. How have you been finding that? Yeah, I think I think that's all, all very true. I think you've got, you have got to pick, put more effort to make them feel at ease, especially if they haven't done this. Like I've done quite a few interviews online now, so I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm going with that and how I want that to go. Um, but you also have to take into consideration like the awkwardness of if the internet cuts out, yeah. even worse if it's your internet and like, and you have to sort of play that off and, and just like, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. I know it interrupted what you were gonna say and you're not gonna go back to what you were gonna say, but don't worry about it, sort of that sense, I think. But I have found one benefit of it is that when the internet connection on both ends is really good, it's a lot better for transcribing because it's clear. Because I've had, when I was meeting people and do face-to-face -face interviews, I would meet them where they felt comfortable. And sometimes that would be, oh, let's go to the restaurant. Let's, I'll meet you in this cafe. And it's so difficult to transcribe with the background noise. Yeah. 
and I know that that's one of the things you probably shouldn't do in a, in a in an interview but I just sort of went with where they felt comfortable so that's been a benefit I think that it's been easier to to transcribe yeah yeah I hear what you're saying though about you know missing particularly on the phone the the verb the, the visual clues yeah mm. even on zoom even doing these podcasts sometimes the questions we don't ask get the best answers and you can kind of see them coming when somebody thinks mm. of something and then mm. some talk about something tangential so i can see that that's really really difficult i heard you mentioning security as something that you'd coped with and that was going well but i suppose my question is 30 40 years after el salvador was a huge public news item is security still still an item for still an issue for some of the people that you're interviewing now to what extent is it yeah so it's it's definitely an ongoing issue in the country but for the things that i want to talk about it's generally safe to talk about you know the civil war and the violence because that is accepted but there's an ongoing gang problem in in the in El Salvador at the moment, which has been emerged since the end of the civil war. Talking about that with participants would be really difficult, but I'm not touching that. So when I when I talk about security, I mean like making sure that like it's and the video call is end to end encrypted and making sure that it's not going to be hacked or like zoom bombed or anything, and just giving people that sense of mind, that peace of mind that what we're talking about. Because some of the people that I've interviewed were involved in really interesting but quite radical, and I've, I've had to offer, I have offered um, anonymity to participants. So if they've asked for anonymity, I also need to make sure that they feel secure and that they feel as secure as if I was there. Yeah. Um, so then, on the back of that, can I ask? Because um, obviously. Um, aside from the content specific things that you're talking about here that your research has to take into account obviously we all have to do ethic um fill out ethics forms and get ethical yeah. approval i know a lot of us that shifted to online we all obviously had to make changes to the um to the ethics form and there might be some students that haven't necessarily done that yet how did i'm assuming you did that if you did how did you find that was it quite a smooth process was there a lot that you had to take into account no it was it was really straightforward um i because i thought about like entering encryption and that sort of stuff I just had to point out that that was what I thought about and then that was the program I was using but it was only because it was only a minor amendment to my ethics form as it, I think as it happened for me is it just got approved straight away so I didn't really have to yeah. we, it took a while to make sure that the wording was right but it was only a minor amendment because I was still doing interviews and I'd considered that I might have to do some interviews online anyway yeah. So I, I didn't particularly want to, but it was something that I'd already considered. So it wasn't a massive change. We can bring you forward in our metaphorical time from COVID suddenly arriving into the golden days of late summer, when you're turning to your archival research and some of the closed archives start to open. How did that go? And how's it worked now? It's not so open. Yeah, I, so I managed to get down to the National Archives in Kew in August, purely by fluke, I think, because they started to open up slots for like visitors to the reading room, um, but you had to be online, and I think it's, I, I don't know, I haven't looked because I don't need to go, but you had to be online at like Monday 11 o'clock to get a slot for a couple of weeks in advance, and they only released them then for two weeks, and 
I managed to get a two-day slot so I managed to go and finish my government sources which has been a massive massive help um, and it, I was really impressed actually it was really really COVID secure I felt really really safe I drove down and then yeah and it was good it was really socially distant I actually was given like my entire section because it was quite empty oh, so that went well um, and then other archives like have been slowly opening but the thing that I found that was really useful in the summer was that the archivists started to come back up furlough so they were able to respond to queries I'd left them and we had some really interesting conversations and then just as I was starting to consider more trips we've obviously that's all closed again but it's still been worthwhile because I know more now about what I'm going to do when I can do it. Yeah it's a really good lesson there for, for everybody about Part of the change in the methods is to seize the day, isn't it? Seize yeah, absolutely. Power. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You when we talked before that some of the participants have posted you their archives. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so with a lot of the stuff that I'm looking at, particularly with the human rights work and the really small organisations that were around for sort of the 80s when things were particularly bad in El Salvador, those aren't they're not official charities and they haven't got official archives so all of my research when I was planning it was like oh, I'll just do some interviews about that and the more I've researched about them the more interesting they've been and those interviews I've sort of made a point of asking people did you keep anything from your work and that's been really really fruitful and I recommend that to if people have you know if they're around an official archive and you've got an interview just ask them what they've kept because I've what I found is so many people have just kept stuff because it's they worked on it and I'm really surprised but really grateful yeah. um, and then we've been having conversations about well like, can I see it like can I see what you kept and people say really <laughs> like they yes. just captured you know collecting dust and so yeah so collection services like DPD where they pick it up from somebody's house and deliver it to you and they're not that expensive mm. and that has been a lifesaver so I've got stacks of boxes and um so that's been really good well, and a lot of it is on a borrowed you know that I will return it to them but that's mm. that's been really, that's sort of been a lifesaver whilst everything formal has been closed yeah it sounds really nice as well that there's a method where they can put it in a box and then the box gets to, they know the box will get delivered yeah. and that's that it hasn't got that going in the middle of nowhere feel in the middle yeah. it's really really nice yeah yeah so one thing that we found talking to other people about this doing things differently and i've found it myself even with books from the library about using them more thinking more deeply really about what i'm doing has that has that happened for you would you say yeah i've definitely had to think about how I can use the sources that I've already got to look at problems that I wasn't hadn't associated with those sources so I've definitely thought more on the you know in the event that I don't get any more sources or I don't get any further then how can I use what I've got and I think that's been really interesting that's brought up some really interesting perspectives for my research so I think that's definitely been yeah, beneficial. Yeah. 
tell us one. Tell us an example. We can edit the gap where you think of it. Yeah, so some of, so there's the magazine series called Central America Report, which I had associated with um, the Central America Human Rights Committee because that's who published it. And I just sort of thought that's the one. When I look at that, that's what I'll look at. You know, that's my yeah. source base. Yeah. And actually, the more I've interviewed and the more I've thought about this source base, the people involved in that were also involved in solidarity later. So it's a really good cross-referencing tool of pinpointing the people that are involved across the spectrum. Yeah. So that's been really interesting. So with all these difficulties, and it sounds like you've, you've really, you've either got over them, through them, had anticipated them, or have gone deeper into things you might not have thought, partly through snowball interviews. With all of them, do you have any advice for students who find themselves in a similar position? For example, are any of these changes that might change the way you'd work and you'd recommend we all work in the future? What's your advice? Um, yeah, I think just, I think flexibility is, is key. I've had to be a lot more flexible than I thought I would have to be. And I think just not worrying about it and just thinking, okay, like that's not worked out. And, and I know that when I when I started my PhD, I was told like stuff isn't going to work. You know, there will always be stuff that doesn't work out. But there's been so much more stuff that hasn't worked out than I thought. Um, so I think yeah, I think flexibility. But also, I think I underestimated the amount of sources I would find online and the willingness of people to help as well. Yeah. I think so. I think even if there's an only a slight chance that somebody might know or might be able to help you, I think get in touch because that's been really beneficial to me so far and I think it continues yeah and you're so right I've definitely found that on um asking just getting in touch with people and just relying on the, the goodwill of people which is definitely something that I think a lot of PhD students find I think just picking up on what you said about flexibility is so useful because I think a lot of us I mean I've spoken about this before on the podcast about when I did when I knew that I had to change my methods and I just dragged my heels for months acting like the global pandemic would just like go away for the mm -hmm. sake of my PhD and a lot of us come into you know we all come into the PhDs knowing exactly what we want to do right and and yeah. want to do it this way and this is how it's going to be done and because you because it's in your head all the time you spend so mm -hmm. much time thinking about it and with it you carry it around like you know a, a add-on to your body and actually being flexible is exactly what we have to be right now and I think once you I guess for me it was like a bit of a barrier to get over once I kind of got over that I was like right okay I can I can run with this I can mm. look in other fields of literature I can look at different methods but it's getting over that almost mental barrier of I have to let go a bit here mm. to actually move forward especially during the pandemic I think that's definitely something that I probably wish I'd have done maybe back in May not like yesterday <laughs> yeah I, I definitely agree and I think that there's an element of it's not a waste of time if you have to switch direction slightly because you can always come back to that if there is a way around that block so I think I've, the way I've kind of coped over the pandemic is like okay I'll go down this route or I'll hit a roadblock let me switch and it's not wasted time because I will come back to it and hopefully that roadblock like you say will have just disappeared for the sake of my PhD but even if it hasn't I might have learned something to help me get around that. Um, and so I think, yeah, I just think just that 
you're so right like you know I remember someone said to me when I started my PhD like no reading's wasted yeah um yeah you know and I think that's so important to remember and it's really difficult to remember that when we're up against deadlines and timelines and and you're writing to to a certain chapter brief and, and blah 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 but actually yeah you're right you're completely right it's not yeah. wasted it's just trusting that the process that is that is our process like doing it during a pandemic is our process yeah. now it is our reality so we just yeah. have to go through those motions um that's so important yeah and also that the expected chapter order is kind of a victim of time if you can't mm -hmm. do this chapter now then do one of the others the fact is yeah as far as i can gather that in the final year you kind of put it all together into something approaching the final document it doesn't really matter necessarily what order you do them in especially if there's yeah. a global pandemic has just interrupted you you know that's a pretty decent reason to get on with something else while you can so it's a study of time isn't it really yeah definitely yeah could we could we move through to move on from your research and that's amazing what you've really done to to generally you know these these kind of things that would apply to any of us and so we're probably asking ourselves this as well how's how's the writing going <laughs> um <laughs> yeah um you can buy it <laughs> we're not your supervisors but yeah. we are sending this to them <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I've made some, it's like, it's like you say, you know, it's not written in order and I think I've made some good starts and I've had, I have honestly written drafts and thought, I'll come back to that, I'll come back to that. So I've got a sense of where I'm going with it, but I think it will be better this way rather than like hyper-focusing on one thing till it's perfect or till it's as close to as possible. I think I've thought about how now I, I have more of a sense of how they all interact or how in theory how they all interact like when I finally write them down but no it's it's going it's going okay and I think that this pandemic time has been a blessing in a very small way that I've been forced to sit down and start writing so whereas I would have spent the year quite busy um, I've had more time to sit and think about it in more detail and get stuff down on paper which I'm sure will benefit me in the long run yeah. Well, that's good. So not all bad. And not at all. How's, the, how's the support going? Is it How's it working with your supervisors since I mentioned them? How's, how's the online and general support working out? Really well. I, feel, I think it's been really well supported. I think um, like the online supervision hasn't, hasn't been a problem. It's, if anything, has increased in regularity. Um, and they've been really supportive in all the roadblocks. And I've had couple of meetings where I've gone you know what I haven't got any further because these are all the problems I've got and it's been really useful to sort of talk those through mm -hmm. and I think the department like especially this semester there's been a lot more of a push on like getting everybody together and trying to um, like offer online training and online events to replace what we would have done in person and I think that's been quite nice um, and quite helpful as well to speak yeah. to everybody and even stuff like this like it's not just my field work that and obviously it was never going to be just my field work but you do get the sense when you're home alone you're like oh yeah. <laughs> you know yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah we get the sense that these are this is kind of like a recorded version of the conversations in the corridor with two yeah. people from another department that might help or might just be passing the time of day so i mean 
what have you missed about the university? I've, I've mentioned there the sort of casual meetings. What else might as we actually missed about the physical place? Yeah, I think I think the being not being in the office and not being able to see other people. You know, even if it's just a casual, like, oh, hey, how's how's everything going? It just that's I found that really reassuring at the first few years of yeah. having that physical reminder that you're not actually on your own in this and that there is an entire cohort and that everybody's having all the same kind of problems and I think that that was that's probably what I miss the most because I think everything else has almost been replicated yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah and I suppose the last from me unless there's another one from Abby we all met online talking about online so we all met you <laughs> on the um the history work in progress group is there anything you want to say about what's happening next on that while well, you have the ears of quite yeah. a lot of people through that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a new sort of initiative from the history department. I got involved in organising that with Emily Warrilow and Frank Thorpe. So we're all history PhD students, so we're all sort of coming to midway to the end. And basically, it's just, the concept is that there's a space for people to present problems they're having or kind of half papers or even as as you did a full really good paper and, and get feedback on that <laughs> yeah that was right, um, not me just to clarify <laughs> <laughs> so I think and, and it's, it was I thought it was we had the first one uh, a couple of weeks ago and it, it felt really nice to bring everybody together in a more informal uh, space where we could say to people this is you know we've brought you together we've kind of given a little bit of structure but this is your space to get to know your colleagues and also to bring up issues and to kind of get that reassurance that everybody's going through the same thing so we've got the next one is the 18th of November and there's another one in December I don't have the dates in front of me and then hopefully we'll continue this on next semester um, as well yeah. well we can put the dates on the Yep, the we'll text that goes oh, on yeah. that would be, be really interesting um, really and anything else that you need but anything anything else from you abby no i think that was so great it was really nice to to hear where you're up to and, and you know i think it's so useful to hear well it's i think for me it's just nice to hear how you've navigated your way around it and are like really really positive about it uh, probably because i'm all up in my own head about being <laughs> dead negative about my work yeah uh, but that's you know my own issue but i think i think it's interesting what you say is it's funny I keep having these conversations with friends that aren't doing PhDs and I'm like I really miss just seeing people and just kind of knowing that you're not going through it alone but it <laughs> but it is just nice to know that it you can you can get quite lonely right when you're just sitting at home and writing so I think yeah things like the PGR working group and those sorts of things are so useful to just reach out and connect with other people yeah and I think we've all We've all got a lot better at being locked down, haven't we, since the first one. We're quite good at it now. Whereas the first yeah. one, it was kind of like I was really objecting to the fact that the people in 1919 hadn't written the how-to lockdown guide that you could immediately <laughs> go to. I thought that was very, very remiss of them. Um, Can you imagine what it was in like? <laughs> but I think, I think you could probably do a PhD in lockdown methods. In fact, maybe that's what this series is about. Yeah. 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 So that was great. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Emily. We'll put um, Emily's details in the description box so you can get in touch with her if you want to talk about any more stuff. And we'll put um, the details of the history working progress group as well. Thank, oh, thank you for having me on. This was really interesting. Really good. No, to talk. It was a pleasure. It was great to talk. And I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. 